Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Um, I'm Charles Stewart, Chairman of Editorial Intelligence, on whose behalf welcome this morning, this fine sunny morning. Um, just a few words for me before handing over. Um, some thank yous, firstly, to our partners in this enterprise, um, Bank of New York Mellon and, of course, uh, Cass Business School, who also are hosts, so many thanks to them. Um, Peter Wilby in The Guardian on Monday described the, the, the report that we're talking about this morning as exhaustively researched. I might also add it was fairly exhaustingly researched, and for that, um, my thanks to my old friend Claire Oldfield, the author of the report, and Sophie Radici, who have helped her so much. Um, just one housekeeping point. This event, as you can tell, is on microphone and will be podcast, so everything is on the record, so watch what you say. And without further ado, over to Jane Martinson, who's chairing Media Rest of the Guardian. Many thanks. Why didn't anyone see it coming was one of the big questions of this financial collapse. And the role of the press has been under great scrutiny, with MPs and others asking whether or not the press did enough, um, found out about, about the collapse, um, and then perhaps perversely whether they were part of the blame. Um, we're hoping today we have a very distinguished panel to talk about um, some of the lessons that we uh, may or may not have learned. Um, to start off, we have uh, Anthony Grayling, Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London, um, and a Fellow of St Anne's College. As the origin of philosophy is love of wisdom, um, I'm sure that uh, Anthony will help us uh, shed some, some of his wisdom on these uh, cataclysmic events. Um, he's also written several newspaper columns and uh, most recently a biography of the writer William Hazlitt. We then have Andrew Clare. He's a professor of asset management here at the Cass Business School and runs its MSE program. So um, for him, we're looking to make sure that the next generation of graduates will not repeat the mistakes of this one. Um, we then have Woody Kerr, the co-chair EMEA, the Bank of New York Mellon, responsible for its European client management. Prior to July 2007, Woody was the head of human resources at the bank, a job that's become significantly more difficult since he left. <laughs> we then have on my right Simon Nixon, who's a European editor of Heard on the Street for the Wall Street Journal, a must-read for financiers. He also worked on Breaking Views, The Week and Money Week. Simon began his career in investment banking, although that doesn't necessarily mean that he knows what he's talking about nowadays. <laughs> Uh, we then have the slightly late Neil Collins, who does promise us that he's on his way. Um, Neil is now columnist for Reuters' new commentary service. He's been a financial journalist for more than 30 years, and his decision to leave newspapers earlier this year was seen as a sell note for a, an industry that doesn't really need one. Um, Paul Mason, I'm afraid, the Newsnight um, economics editor, is, um, is unable to be with us because he, um, he's very unwell, although we have it under great authority that it's not swine flu. Um, they'll each have five minutes uh, to talk, uh, and then we'll open up the debate for discussion. Um, we've got a great audience here today, um, although I've been told it's not just for the free breakfast that Julia says is very good. Um, uh, and we're hoping for lots of questions. If you can actually... Uh, phrase it as questions, that would be great. And uh, we, as um, Charles said, this is all, um, all on the record. So, Anthony, if you can kick off, please. Well, one thing that always happens when there's a tremendous crisis of some kind in society is that the jokes begin to flow. And, of course, you're, you all know them. You know that the difference between a, a banker and a pigeon in these days is that the pigeon can still make a deposit on a Ferrari, and the bankers can't. You also know that... Um, that uh, 
pretty soon there's going to be a joke about uh, what is swine flu, it's the kind of flu that uh, bankers have and so on. So uh, the, the, these, these are inevitabilities and they're just part of the margin of debate about these matters. But history is full of ironies and I suppose the greatest irony we've been witnessing in the last 24 months maybe is that capitalism, of at least of the Anglo-Saxon variety, has been proving the truth of Marxism, which is that everything that really matters in society matters because it rests on, a, on an economic basis. And I don't know whether the people who've been um, selling on bundles of uh, subprime debt uh, were aware of the fact that they were uh, in the same camp as Marx and Engels on this particular point, but I, I imagine that when it's pointed out to them, they'd be a bit distressed to find it. Well, there are two general remarks that I'd like to make. One is this, that as we sit here today, so there are two constituencies of people out there in the general public uh, whose reactions to the present situation are very different. There's one constituency of people who've been directly affected by it. These are people who've lost their homes or their jobs as a result of, of what's going on in the, uh, in the global economy. And then there's that constituency of people who are not affected by it at all, who don't seem to feel anything. They walk down Oxford Street, they go shopping, shops are full of people, uh, they go on holiday, plan their holiday. Things seem to them to be pretty well the same. And in a, in a, in a way, that, that must be surprising for them. And their only resource, really, is the media to explain what's happening, what's likely to happen, um, what the prospects are for themselves, given the sharp division uh, in these two kinds of experience. And so if we look at the media, and we look at what the media's been doing in the last uh, uh, 24 months and more, there's a very, very interesting report discussing how the media have responded. One thing one notices is this, that there are three sections of a, of a newspaper or a media outlet that have addressed this crisis. There is the news section, there's the expert commentary and analysis section, and then there are leader articles. And most people out there on the street who switch on the radio or buy a newspaper go for the news section. And news sections tend, although sometimes, to reflect or to embody what the expert analysis has been offering on the situation, don't always do so. And there is an imperative, and we see it happening again right now before our eyes, to dramatise situations, to focus on single issues, like, for example, the swine flu outbreak at the moment, uh, to talk a bit about salient aspects of, of a crisis. So people get in, in the news part of their news broadcasts and, and uh, newspapers a, a, a somewhat overdramatised, somewhat heated, overheated, and somewhat selective picture of what's happening out there. And I bet that if you were to stop not somebody in the street in the city, but somebody in the street in the West End, let's say a shopper, and ask them for a, a, an account of how this happened and what's going on and why there is a problem, I'm, I'm not confident that they're going to be as informed as they ought to be as a result of the uh, of, of the media coverage. Not because the media coverage itself has failed, but because people read the news stories and they don't go to the financial pages unless they have a particular reason to do so, unless they're in the financial services industries or, or in, in banking or something. So the, 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 the question, has the media informed the public, uh, educated them, made them understand the wellsprings of, of what's happened here? The jury is somewhat out on that. Partly, I think, because we're still in the middle of it. We don't quite know how long it's going to go on for. We don't know whether all the measures that have been taken by governments around the world are really going to work. But I was dismayed by the um, media coverage of the budget. Now, I'm not going to hold any brief for, for this government or, or, or the budget that they've produced, but I noticed that the media coverage of the budget tended to, uh, to take the, the uh, tone that 
the government was responsible for what's happening in the country, that it was because, I mean, in part they're right, of course, about deregulation and the rest and the management of the economy over the last decade or more, but uh, as if the problem that people are facing, if they are facing problems, was more directly attributable to government decisions over the last decade than it was to global factors. And that, that, that's a, a, an illustration of how tendentious sometimes coverage can be. And when it is tendentious, of course, it does less well in informing, which is one very, very important task that uh, the media have. So the, the, the reaction that I have is, is to um, the, the, the whole picture that has been painted by the media, the degree of success to which it's painted a picture accurate enough uh, deep enough for the population as a whole, not just the expert part of the population, but, but whether that's uh, worked and, and been a success um, story for the media. I think, to some extent, from my point of view, the jury is a little bit out on that. Why? And I end on this note, because after all, my day job is as a teacher of philosophy, so we pride ourselves on thinking about moral concepts and the rest. We always uh, straighten our backs and start talking about ethics. But there is, of course, uh, an ethical dimension to this, an ethical social dimension to this. The thought of a single uh, individual who's lost a job, whose family is affected by it, whose mortgage is uh, at risk and so on, you know, is a very serious matter. If you get down to the individual level and you think about it, it's a very, very serious matter. And so decisions taken, things done, uh, um, gambling um, activities performed by, by bankers two years ago, five years ago, has an impact on individuals, and so there is a deep ethical dimension here. And what one is waiting to see is not the pack of hounds going after one banker, you know, Fred Goodwin or somebody, blame one individual, but a, a really serious understanding of how this happened, uh, how, how it was allowed to go so far, and what we're going to do, which doesn't, you know, kill the golden goose, but on the other hand does infuse into practice, behavior, structures, institutions in places like Wall Street and the city, sufficient degree of responsibility so that uh, more stability and uh, more safety in a way for the little man, for the individual uh, can, can be assured. That's, that's what we're waiting to hear now. We look, can look for serious discussion in the media that could lead and encourage and inform uh, a public debate about that matter because now, of course, it's the future that matters. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you to Editorial Intelligence for inviting me um, to talk and take part of the panel today. Um, I read the report last night. It's a very interesting report. Um, it's a very um, thought-provoking um, aspects in the report. There's one, there was one comment from um, Robert Peston, you know, Mr. Credit Crunch, um, which I thought was quite interesting. He says that, I think he said something like, this is the most important financial event of his life or his career. And this is a very important uh, event, uh, financial event, it's true. But actually, it ranks probably as number two in my own life, with the first being the arrival of my two children, which was quite a financial event, too, for me. <laughs> but um, so, yes, th I mean, these, these are, um, people have said it, these are unprecedented times, and um, we've not seen anything quite like this before. Um, one of the questions that you opened up with was, you know, could we have seen this coming? Well, I think there are plenty of uh, as economists and journalists who did see aspects of this problem and told us about them plenty of times. Um, for example, um, it's been fairly obvious to most UK economists that the UK housing market has been hopelessly overvalued for some time. And we, knew, we all knew it was going to end in tears. Um, 
the media played some role in pumping up that bubble. I, I lost count of the number of television programs there were about how you could make millions of pounds by buying and selling homes. I mean, the media played a role in pumping up that house price bubble. There's no doubt about it. There's also plenty of economists and uh, journalists who also pointed out that the, um, the imbalances in the global economy, uh, by which I mean the large trade deficits in the US and surpluses in China, etc., would have to be unwound at some stage. There was some point in time in the future where Americans would have to um, stop spending uh, more than they earn, um, and that was going to be painful. I think what nobody really saw, and I think Willem Bauter um, uh, mentioned this, uh, I think, this week or last week in the FT, is that, that uh, nobody really expected significant, sizable, sophisticated financial institutions um, to suffer the sort of liquidity crisis that you see in small, less developed economies. And that, that, was, the, that was the shock to the system, really, this entire collapse in confidence amongst bankers. Um, could we have foreseen that? Well, it's very difficult for anyone, really, outside of that industry and outside of those particular, uh, um, the products that were involved in that uh, crisis of confidence, to have known what really what was going on. I think, you know, that really is what took us all by surprise, the fact that, you know, bankers who for, you know, the last five, ten years have been telling us how intelligent and how clever they are and how these financial products are going to change everyone's lives, etc. It turned out that they didn't understand them. And, um, and I don't think you can blame anyone in the media for not realising that these guys didn't understand what they were doing. This was all going on behind closed doors. Um, However, you know, so and it's, it's not that we didn't sit, foresee a crisis. Just, uh, certainly, like I said, some journalists, some economists certainly foresaw uh, problems coming. I certainly thought we were, gonna, we were headed for a recession in the UK at some time. I didn't think it would be this severe, but then I didn't, uh, like most people, uh, forecast the sort of collapse in um, confidence within the banking sector. However, once it broke, I think the media did play a very important role in explaining the situation to ordinary people. Um, I, uh, to such an extent, I was walking through Regent's Park with my nine-year-old daughter, um, I think about six or seven weeks ago, and she just sort of turned to me and said, Daddy, is the credit crunch affecting you? And I thought, well, you know, this... Uh, I said, no, it's okay, just, just go back to riding your bike or whatever. You're nine, forget it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the media have played an incredible role in sort of explaining it. Nobody knew what quantitative, outside of the world of economics, really, nobody knew what quantitative easing was, or really even what a credit crunch was. You know, a credit crunch is the, the widespread, indiscriminate withdrawal of credit, regardless of credit worthiness, and that's effectively what we've seen over the last um, two years or so. Um, and the media have played an important role in that. However, have the media made it worse than it could have been? Possibly. It's at the margin, I think, that is possible. I mean, I do think... I, mean, I remember as an economist at Legal in General um, um, in the last global recession, um, various journalists used to ring me up quite regularly to say, you know, the US is going into recession, Germany's about to head into its second recession. Uh, don't you think the UK is going to go into recession? And I kept telling them, no, I didn't, didn't think it was. I thought the policy response in the UK was sufficient to mean that we wouldn't experience a recession. Um, but they didn't seem to want to hear that. What they wanted me to say was the R word, and I refused to say it. Well, I mean, I, I guess to some extent you've got to be careful what you wish for, um, and we've got the R word in spades now. So I think at the margin, the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the media possibly have put an, uh, a kind of spin on it with it's frightened some people, that I think it's really marginal, to be honest. Would the crisis have happened if you hadn't reported anything about the credit crunch? Yes. 
you know, you did not affect the way bankers behaved uh, over the last year or so. They were not affected by what they were reading in newspapers. They were affected by a realisation of their own effective stupidity. One, you know, that's what really uh, uh, brought it home to them. So um, the media, I think, have played an, uh, an important role, largely in terms of educating us with, with respect to this. But I, I do think that perhaps you could look on the brighter side occasionally. I know you, you, you're normally pilloried for saying things like that. But um, going back to, to your point, um, I, I suspect, and please don't report this because it just scare people, I suspect unemployment in the UK could well be heading for uh, above 10%. Don't tell anyone, please. Um, I think there's two awful aspects about that. First of all, that UB40 might release that awful one in ten song. Please, God, don't let them do that. But the other one is that the headlines will be one in ten people unemployed in Britain, and you'll go to some specific story about some poor couple in the northeast of England who blah, 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 lost their house, etc., that sort of thing. Another headline could be 90% of people still employed. 90% of people will remain employed throughout this entire crisis. Um, and I think that just paints a very obvious different different picture. It doesn't change the situation, but on the other hand, it may well play a small role in uh, dragging us out of this, uh, uh, this current crisis. And then finally, on, on the point about... Uh, I'm, I'm worried about talking about ethics, uh, given that you're sat next to me. Um, <laughs> I'm an ethical individual. I OK, I hope I'm an ethical individual. I mean, I do think it's quite clear that um, people did behave unethically. And I think... Um, on the whole, they thought their, their, their micro-unethical decisions wouldn't make much difference. I think it's probably it. But, of course, if you all act in that unethical way, it ends up as being a very big problem. What can universities do about it? Well, certainly universities can point out to people and to our students um, you know, what is and isn't unethical behaviour. But to be honest, I think deep down, we all know that anyway. And I, I think the worry is that unethical people will nearly always behave unethically no matter how much you tell them about you know, the need to act ethically and I think that unfortunately there is a role uh, for the regulator to prevent that sort of behaviour um, because it, it will happen again and again and again because people as I said are, are, are given a micro choice, behave unethically earn a lot of money very quickly nobody's going to care or behave ethically and perhaps even lose my job because I haven't generate enough cash um, and when you scale that up unfortunately that's where you get to the situation we are today so I think that's um, all I have to say on those points I don't know any good jokes so I won't even attempt it um, you might think it's somewhat brave of me sitting here as the only banker in a room full of journalists and commentators and educators well you're right it is brave of me um, <laughs> We at the Bank of New York Mellon were very pleased to participate uh, in this important project uh, with Cass Business School and, of course, Editorial Intelligence. And kudos, really, to Claire Oldfield for a terrific final product uh, and also to uh, Julia for, for her leadership. Now, we wanted to sponsor the project because we thought uh, it was looking at this question from a very kind of an interesting lens, and there was something we could learn, learn from the output I should probably take just a moment to tell you a bit about who we are. Uh, we were founded 225 years ago by Alexander Hamilton, 
the first secretary of the Treasury and arguably the father of the financial, the capital markets really in the United States. You know, today the Bank of New York Mellon is engaged really in two basic businesses. We manage money for institutions and for individuals, and we service securities. We don't do retail. We don't make mortgage loans. We don't make subprime loans. We don't do credit cards. And we're also not an investment bank. Our bread and butter is providing critical services to investors and issuers of securities globally. And we do it in a very big way. Uh, just as an example, we're the world's largest custodian of securities with over $19 trillion in securities under custody and administration uh, throughout the world. You know, as I look at the, at the role of the informed kind of commentariat, I think that they have been key to the understanding of what we've seen in the last couple of years through this financial global meltdown. And I think the uh, commentariat has, uh, in, in aggregate, done an excellent job of raising the issues, uh, examining the themes, educating the wider population, uh, but also, uh, I think, informing uh, market participants, those on the inside. And I think with respect to, I think it's a good point uh, that you raise about, uh, you know, media coverage and the headlines. I think glass half-empty stories sell better than glass glass uh, half full stories, but we, we can come back to that. And then finally, I think the commentariat uh, plays a, an important role in, in holding to account those responsible uh, across the system, whether uh, it's market participants, regulators, politicians, individuals, borrowers, etc. I don't think that to the extent that the commentariat didn't get it all right, uh, didn't you know, predict everything that happened is 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 bad thing, or it's to be unexpected. Um, nobody has has a crystal ball, and I think as uh, as Andrew points out, there were there were many red flags raised um, in recent years. I think there was some really excellent uh, media coverage. I, I have to say, as I kind of prepared myself for this morning, uh, looking back, doing some some research. Um, I found a piece in The Economist back in 2002, which I thought was, was particularly notable, where they've said a housing bubble is more dangerous than a stock market bubble because it is associated with more debt. A steep fall in house prices would harm the global economy far more than a slump in share prices. Very prescient stuff seven years ago. Uh, my view is that the role of the commentariat now should be to kind of dispassionately and rigorously analyze uh, what's going on, uh, how, the, how we're responding to the crisis, act as kind of an independent auditor, if you will, in, in holding, holding uh, uh, those who are trying to fix these problems to account and making sure that we're moving forward responsibly uh, and in a forward-thinking way. Just kind of reflecting on, on what I've seen in the coverage of the crisis, I think there are some very interesting um, issues that come out, and this is from my role as somebody who's sitting there on the train in the morning with my FT and other newspapers uh, getting ready for the day. But it's, I think it's been fascinating to see how kind of new ways of communication have really been brought to the fore throughout this period, particularly in the blogosphere. Um, and really, truly, at a, at, a, uh, at a time of profound change in the way people are accessing information, 
uh, and certainly people in this room are probably far more uh, steeped in this than I am. But I read the other day that in, just in recent months, five major newspaper companies in the United States have filed for bankruptcy. And these are companies that control such kind of age-old names in the in newspaper world in the U.S. It's the Chicago Tribune, uh, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Minnesota, Minneapolis Star Tribune. I mean, there have been stories about the Boston Globe, uh, San Francisco Chronicle. You know, circulation rates are plummeting in the U.S. Advertising spending is... Uh, is, uh, is kind of off the cliff, if you will. And you know, people are ex accessing their news now online, where it's real time, where it's plentiful, and most importantly, it's free, and maybe that's a topic for another uh, debate. I think what's interesting about the internet and blogs, though, is it presents the common period, who we're talking about today, with incredible opportunities to distribute more in-depth analysis to those who, who seek it, um, where there's not the constraints of a, a physical newspaper. There's probably a different kind of deadline pressure. Uh, it's real time. It also provides them with a global platform that an individual newspaper might not, might not provide, which I think is very interesting. And uh, Somebody mentioned Robert Peston. Uh, my colleagues back in New York might not know Robert Peston from his work on radio or on television. But they certainly, uh, lots of them know who Robert Peston is because of his, his blogs. And I think that the blog has played a very key role in all this, and I think is, uh, is, has uh, a lot of good to do for the this, this system because it also changes the dialogue. It establishes the dialogue between the writer and the reader. The medium becomes a dialogue, which is very, very powerful stuff. And as an aside... Uh, if you look at today, there are a lot of articles in newspapers about the f marking the f first 100 days of the Obama administration. The Obama campaign, the Obama people understood the power of the Internet and blogs extremely well. Uh, and I, I think that's a very interesting uh, issue. At any rate, I moved here in August of 2007, arguably at the top of the market. Uh, I can assure you that with respect to real estate, it was as we were walking around London with our mouths agape, um, trying to find a place to live. Um, but I've, I've, mentioned, I've seen some very interesting uh, differences, and I'm kind of conclude on this, in, in the way coverage uh, works here versus back in the States. You know, Americans, as you know, are television junkies. Uh, I think there is more of a, a newspaper culture here in the UK. And increasingly in the States, you know, informed opinion is coming out of uh, cable and, and broadcast news. And we have this, um, you know, uh, huge infrastructure that's developed kind of during the bull market years with, uh, uh, you know, the uh, CNBCs and the CNNs, Bloomberg's, Fox. Um, and that's where Americans go, go for a lot of their information. And that's where a lot of this informed opinion uh, is, is coming out. Uh, but interestingly, and that, that being said, I see that, that the uh, market research firm Instat reports now that 33% of Americans report watching television while being on the, on the computer at the same time. And with respect to men in certain age categories, it's more than 50%. 
talk about multitasking. Uh, but I think that, that it's an interesting commentary, again, on how people are getting their information. No doubt a certain percentage of them have a newspaper sitting on the couch next to them. So at any rate, uh, thank you. I look forward to, to, uh, to this debate and commend the report to you as an excellent piece of work uh, that I think uh, really uh, does a, um, a very rigorous view and gives uh, looking at a, a, a remarkable period of history uh, in a new and different way. Thank you. Thank you, Woody. Um, Simon and then Neil, and if you can keep it to five minutes each. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, uh, yes, I agree. I think it's a very interesting piece of work, and, uh, and, and, um, and what I like about it best is it, it acknowledges that business journalism, financial journalism matters. Um, I'm just very glad that my own stuff hasn't been forensically analysed in this report um, because it might have made rather painful reading. Um, I, I think that I think look, the, the issue you know, did the, should journalists have seen it coming? Well, I think the answer is that the financial press saw a financial crisis or saw you know bubbles everywhere for decades. It's kind of what the financial press does is spot bubbles and. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I seem to remember that I think about the first piece of financial journalism I wrote about 10 years ago was, you know, is the UK housing market overheated? The answer was inevitably yes. Um, and I think, so I think the problem was that, you know, we, everyone expected the financial crisis to break when the dot-com bubble burst. Um, and then it didn't, and then the financial crisis didn't melt down. Well, probably expected it to break down when the uh, LTCM crisis in 1998, and then after the dot-com bubble... I think by 2006, 2007, the contrarian thing almost in the press to do was to try and work out why the world hadn't ended, um, and you know, trying to understand what you know, why what seems to be so obviously a bubble in uh, in the credit markets, why the massive trade imbalances hadn't led to what everyone assumed should have happened. So I think that the financial press was was trying to explore all these issues, and if they didn't find the answer, if they didn't actually predict that the financial system would melt down. It was because I suppose to see the whole picture, you had to see so many different things that you had to, you'd had to have understood the U.S. housing market, you'd had to understand bank regulation, bank accounting, you needed to understand the CDOs, the CLOs. I mean, the, 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 to, to try and picture all the pieces of the puzzle for a jobbing journalist in 2007 was an incredibly difficult task. Um, and I think lots of people got different, different bits of it, and I think the financial press did did pretty well. Um, I, mean, I suppose the, the wider issue, though, is, um, you know, therefore comes out of that, is, is the financial press really very influential? Um, and I suppose, the, and although I understand Anthony Grayling um, um, clearly thinks that it is, I, um, despite working as a financial journalist, I wonder if he's right. You know, no one seemed to pay a blind bit of attention when people were warning that the UK housing market was overheating or that... Uh, uh, pick toggles were bound to end in disaster for the, uh, or that the private equity market had clearly, you know, must have been lost leave of its senses if it was prepared to pay, you know, borrow up to ten times EBITDA to buy Sainsbury's or whatever. I mean, you know, the, the, clearly, the, clearly the financial press wasn't very influential in the run-up to the bubble. So the idea that the financial press has suddenly become incredibly influential now that things have gone wrong and that uh, we're somehow spooking the, the markets into. Uh, uh, into recession, I think, is, is, is equally wrong. Um, if anything, I think the financial press, its biggest crime was an element of self-censorship uh, throughout the crisis as it tried to uh, avoid being unduly alarmist or making itself absurd. In fact, the, probably the more accurate um, analysis was taking place outside of the mainstream media on the blogs where people felt less constrained. Um, and that, 
and so that then poses another interesting question, I think, which perhaps this report um, maybe is a subject for another report, which is uh, you know where the really influential bits of the financial press are, or where the where the really influential financial journalism is taking place. I mean, um, that, you know, clearly um, uh, there's a lot of the electronic media that's not covered in this pre in, in this report, like Bloomberg, Reuters, Breaking Views, which where I spent most of the beginning of the credit crunch and the, and the boom years. Um, uh, and, and then, and obviously the new media. And I suspect that, that in terms of the real influence, that uh, in the financial system anyway, that, that probably the, the real influence is there. Um, in terms of the mainstream media, I mean, clearly they are a factor, though. They have been become a factor since the crisis broke. Uh, that The commentariat that is analysed in this report has become increasingly a factor as a financial journalist looking at the financial system, one has to bear in mind, because of the way in which the politicians who are now calling the shots can be so easily swayed by tides of public opinion. Um, but even there, I think one has to exercise a note of caution. I mean, if uh, the fact, again, if the media was really as influential as, uh, as people sometimes think, then Fred Goodwin would no longer have a pension. Uh, Harriet Harman would have introduced a one-line bill to the House of Commons stripping him of it. So, uh, so perhaps it's a good thing that the press isn't quite as influential as we, as we sometimes like to think we are. Um, I just want to make... A, just a, a comment, though, from a couple of observations on being a sort of journalist still cover, covering the credit crunch now, and uh, and you know what it's like. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, one of the things I find interesting looking back at re reading this report and thinking about my job over the last year and a half is um, that, that is thinking how 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 our perspectives changed. I remember when you know, August the 9th, 2007, when the BNP Paribas funds broke up. I mean, it was quite clear to everyone on that day that this was a truly seismic moment. I mean, I remember just, you know, going home that day after writing about three articles and being on the phone for 12 hours, that this was a momentous moment. And, um, but I think that in, in, the, in those months that followed after that, I mean, the word that would be interesting to do a word search on... The, uh, all the commentary that came out then and see how, how much the word moral hazard appeared in the early stage of the crisis versus how much it appears now. In the early days of the crisis, we were obsessed by moral hazard. You know, should we bail out? Should, should Northern Rock have been allowed to fail? Should, we have, should it have been nationalised? Should the Bank of England be allowed to take junk for collateral? Should, uh, should, we, should governments guarantee bank debt? I mean, these were sort of huge issues at the time for policymakers to to get their heads around whether you know involving huge decisions about the role of the state which we've now almost forgotten and and i think the issue now looking at the credit crunch that you know i find myself thinking about constantly is you know that we you know that, that the, i mean i suppose the thing that that has emerged that was truly surprising i suspect i think as a financial journalist was realizing that this capitalist system that we thought that we were writing about was no such thing. We were actually dealing with a financial welfare state and that the, um, the government all along was backstopping and guaranteeing everything. And what's happened is we've made explicit what was implicit the whole way through. And it was that implicit guarantee for the, of the government of the entire financial system that I think created this crisis and caused this crisis and is, we're now grappling with. And I think that the challenge for going forward now for financial journalists will be to try and look at the... There's now a real ideological divide or debate to be had about to what extent where the government's involvement should end or how it should be 
constrained or how, government, how we should be able to operate this financial system in the future. And we're going to have a real issue. We will eventually come out of this, but we're going to have a very real challenge. We're going to have a financial system in which large parts of the banks are owned by governments or controlled by governments, in which uh, the, 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 the government guarantee of the entire bank capital structure will be, will be guaranteed by the state. We're going to have a system whereby... Uh, um, there will be lending requirements, there will be uh, very deep regulation, um, and it's going to be very difficult to manage a financial, to manage a financial system. It's going to be a huge power to politicians. And I think that um, you know, we've sort of step-walked into this. The, sort of the whatever-it-takes mentality has happened now virtually without a debate. It's just all about how we keep, try and keep this system going. And I think it's going to create real challenges for the future, and, uh, and luckily, fortunately, hopefully, real opportunities for financial journalists um, the only issue that, of course, Woody raises is, will anyone pay for our financial journalism? I think we provide a very important, valuable service. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me is that a lot of financial journalists who are producing this excellent commentary are paid um, less than a lot of bankers pay their nannies. So we have to. Uh, so I think there's a real issue uh, for the future about. Uh, how, we, how, how this financial journalism we need is going to be paid for. So maybe um, the answer is for journalists to do what every other industry seems to be doing and apply to the government for bailout. <laughs> it's already happening. Oh. <laughs> Neil, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, uh, having arrived at a seminar for editorial intelligence, I've betrayed editorial stupidity by going to the wrong place, so I apologize for uh, my late arrival. Um, I've read this pamphlet and feel that I'm in a very strong position to comment on it since I'm not mentioned in it. So, so much for the power of the press. I would make the general point that uh, one of the problems of being a specialist financial journalist is that you have to try and make a sort of intellectual effort to understand the system which you're writing about. Uh, and when you're trying to understand something as complex as the financial services industry in London, um, it's absolutely inevitable that some of the assumptions made by the players sort of rub off on you. You have to swim in the water you're in if you say to yourself all along, this is all going to end in tears, I don't believe it, they will turn around and say, well, actually, it's because you don't understand it. And if you make an effort to understand it, then you are one step along the road towards accepting that it's a normal state of affairs. Uh, and no more is this... Uh, shown better than in the issue of bankers' bonuses. Um, we got the point last year, we journalists got to the point last year, where a million pound bonus was really not worth bothering to report because it hardly showed on the radar. Uh, we weren't getting them ourselves, but no, as Simon says, this is a jolly good way to keep us cross and hungry. Um, treat them mean and keep them keen. Um, but a million pound bonuses was a sort of irritating rounding error. Uh, and the only ones that really were worth uh, reporting and digging into were the ones which were an order of magnitude greater. And this was somehow 
an acceptable state of affairs. And yes, we could and should have made more fuss about it and said, who are these people? Why on earth are they worth this huge amount of money? Um, but my point is you sort of become infected with, uh, with the infectious greed, I suppose, um, even if you're not getting any of it yourself. Um, the other point I think Simon touched on um, is the, uh, you know, the old cliche that uh, forecasting is always difficult, especially for the future. Um, you know, we don't have crystal ball. We don't see the future. We're trying to see it, but it is hard to spot. Um, and if you had said in 1998 that all the new paradigm of dot-com was a bubble, uh, you'd have been listened to politely, and then the shares would have doubled, and you would have said it again, and saying it's definitely a bubble now, and people would say, oh, it's him again, shares double, and if you're fantastically fortunate, you happen to have written a really miserable, bearish, grumpy piece in December, to, in December 1999 and hit the top of the market perfectly. And then you're a hero because they say, gosh, he saw it coming. But up until that point, people are saying he doesn't understand it. He just hasn't got it. You know, he's an antediluvian newspaper journalist. They're all doomed. And um, the new paradigm is uh, free serve, where a customer is somebody who hits the button on his computer. Um, some tired old definition of customer, like somebody who pays, is no longer relevant. Uh, and you can write until you're blue in the face that I can create a huge amount of turnover by selling £10 notes for nine quid. Uh, but however many I sell, I'm never going to make a profit. Um, but the question is, really, I'm afraid it's a matter of timing. You know, there are moments when people are prepared to listen, and there are plenty of moments when they're prepared not to listen. Um, the, uh, the bears of bank shares, for example, um, uh, were working out that the balance sheets of the banks were unsustainable in 2006, uh, 2005. Um, and some of them were selling bank shares short and because they were convinced that a disaster was going to... Or not a disaster, they were convinced that the prices were far too high and there were real problems ahead. I don't think anybody saw the scale of the disaster. Um, the short sellers, of course, were widely pilloried. But actually, if you try short selling, it's not easy. Uh, the, sh the position of the short seller, it's a bleak and lonely place to be. Um, and the short sellers, having to borrow the stock and roll it over and get it wrong month after month, quarter after quarter, had to wait an awfully long time for, the, for them to be proved right. And a lot of them actually cut their positions because they thought they'd missed something that everybody else could see, and they were wrong. Um, and 
I think this sort of reflects the 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 the, um, the world we're in. Um, I'd just like to make the point about uh, the, the position of journalists. Um, I don't know whether you've all seen the uh, state of play, the uh, the, the sort of um, follow-up to all the president's men um, with, with the journalist as hero. Um, I remember going to see all the president's men and um, laughing at places in the movie and every now scattered through the audience there were other people who'd laugh uh, and they were obviously journalists. <laughs> I went to see State of Play and there were some very funny in-jokes for journalists and I laughed and nobody else was laughing. Um, it's a sort of indication of the sort of decline, I think, of, of journalism generally. Um, it is a paean of praise for, news, for print journalism, and uh, it's great to watch if you're, if you're a journalist, it cheers you up no end. But the fact is that um, increasingly, print journalism, as Simon was saying, is being marginalised um, because the two forms of revenue for it are both in uh, steep decline, advertising and revenue from sales. Uh, I don't think they'll disappear, but I think they will get less and less influential um, as time goes by. I think on that point, depressing notice for all of us journalists in the audience, um, there's been some fantastic points made, um, and I'd like to open this up for discussion to the audience. Um, to ask any one of our panellists um, or <coughs> the panel as a whole. Um, so if you'd like to raise your hand, we have two people um, coming round with uh, mics um, and just identify yourself. Uh, gentleman in the front then um, at the... Thank you. Hi, uh, Matt Holmes from Lexington Communications. Uh, I've got a question for the whole panel actually about um, the sort of volume of coverage. And it strikes me that in the UK certainly it's the first recession that's, that's taken place in the full glare of 24-hour news media and, and the blogs and, and the internet, something that's been mentioned by the panel already. But with the sort of explosion of different channels through which people are able to access information and, and the, the scope and, and sort of appetite for, for comment that 24-hour news media brings, um, I'd just be interested what the panel think that's meant in terms of the quality of coverage and the amount of uh, sort of useful information that's actually got through to the public. Uh, I would just say, if you dilute anything, you, you get uh, poorer quality. Uh, and I'm afraid it's inevitable um, that it, it'll get more spread. You can see it uh, in a parallel position with um, television advertising. As the market fragments, it becomes more and more difficult to reach the audience. And what <coughs> appears on the, uh, the programme becomes less and less influential because it's seen by fewer and fewer people. So I'm afraid that I think that fragmentation is going to continue um, and uh, unless the press, in the widest sense, starts hunting as a pack again, uh, I don't think that it will... In I think its influence will continue to decline. Simon? Well, I, I make the point that we don't... that luckily none of us work 24 hours a day doing seven days a week. So, I mean, you know... The media may be operating 24/7, but you know, individual journalists have the opportunity to work on different timescales and to different agendas. So, I mean, the you know, there's a pretty wide spread of different types of commentary. I mean, clearly, 
you know, the news cycle has been shrunk dramatically. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that there isn't, um, you know, that, that, there is, that, that good quality work can't be done. I mean, the issue, as I was saying earlier, is that simply will anyone pay for it? And I think that's the real challenge. Are people prepared to pay for good, you know, good journalism costs money? And is, who's, are people prepared to invest in it? And, and, and are customers prepared to pay for it? I think that models, new models will work. I think that, you know, that eventually people will... That, that people who produce premium premium quality content will find ways to charge for it and will be able to be paid for it. But I think that that that's part of the ongoing secular change in the media, and it'll take a bit longer to shit, work that one out. What do, you, do you think there's too much journalism? No, I don't. Well, I don't think there's too much journalism. I think it varies in in quality. Certainly, I think the fragmentation point is a good one. That being said. Uh, f for those who who look, there uh, there's incredible knowledge on the uh, accessible in a way that it wasn't before, and that inevitably I think benefits benefits us all. Uh, but I think we're kind of in a you know we're kind of at a time of great change, and uh, you know certainly uh, that will continue to develop. But the the course of the development is uh, is is incredible, and there are some content providers who've been successful at it charging for con content. I know uh, the the journal the journal has. Um, so, but that's th again that's probably for a different a different day and a different session. I think with um, three journalists on the uh, on the panel, we're getting lots of questions about how we fund ourselves in the future. <laughs> but, um, Anthony, this point I mean, the, about the, the amount. Yeah, the, the the aspect of the volume point here that uh, that is concerning is this. That if you if you if I recur to that distinction I drew between the news aspect and the expert analysis aspect, and most people out there, the non-city people, are going to be looking only or mainly at the news thing and not going to the financial pages. And now the news cycle is driven by what's most recent, what new angle, what new person, what new little bit of information has come out. And consequently, with the 24-hour large volume, many media outlet uh, tsunami of, of uh, um, new quote-unquote, new news about this, you get the result is a rather confusing picture. Uh, confusing, <laughs> diluted, I think is exactly the right word for it. A um, lot of repetition, but in, in different disguises. And in the end, this, the sheer amount of noise and static that results is, in fact, counterproductive. I agree. I'm not a big fan of 24-hour news. I don't need to know when Jay Goody's uh, funeral car has reached the corner of Old Kent Road any more than I need to know you know, what the FTSE's done over the last three minutes, to be honest. I think the, um, the stretching out of those news programmes, particularly on the television, um, has diluted the content dramatically, and I think we could do far less of it, really. Nicky Edwards, The Law Society. This question is firstly for Professor Grayling, picking up on his point, which was also reflected in the report about the role of the media and the commentariat in explaining to people how we got here, but also what the way out of this situation is. I'm reminded of another breakfast event to talk about the credit crunch that happened on Snow Day at the London Stock Exchange. Snow Day was a completely unforeseeable extreme weather event that brought London to a halt. Of course, it wasn't unforeseeable any more than extreme financial events are, but it did bring London to a halt. Two big Tory beasts were due there to speak, and they had very different responses to the chaos. David Davis strapped on his boots and hiked in, turned up a bit early, brushed the snow off his boots, rolled up his sleeves and got on with it. Ken Clark rolled up a little bit late with not a mark on his hush puppies, saying how marvellous it was that the roads were completely empty and he could drive through the city and find somewhere to park. 
I wonder which of these two provides the more compelling narrative for the public as it decides how it should feel and act coming out of the recession. Is it austerity or prosperity that's going more appealing to them in the future? One thing, one, one fact about recessions is that uh, if newspapers are shedding staff, then people who do a bit of freelancing find that the telephone's ringing a bit more because those pages have to be filled up. And this subject, you know, are we, do we welcome austerity? Are we relieved that we can now live uh, a rather more parsimonious life? Uh, is that what's going to happen in the future? And all these questions are the inevitable ones that, you know, T2 and G2 editors want answered. So you, you, you get that... Um, uh, invitation to prognosticate a little bit about what sentiment is going to be over the next few years in reaction to this. And, uh, of, of course, I have to remember, in 1912, somebody said, because biplanes fly better than monoplanes, aeroplanes of the future will have 12 wings, so you're conscious of the fact that you're you know, asked to prognosticate about sentiment, you were just going to say, well, there are going to be 12 wings, uh, and you're going to be wrong. I think that, that uh, um, what one really interesting fact about this moment in this in this process of, of recession and discussion about how it happened and, and where it goes from here is that we're all rabbits in the headlights so we don't really know how it's going to pan out mainly because we don't know whether the measures taken to try to do something about it are going to be effective or not and, and we're all kind of waiting and treading water uh, so um, it, it's hard to say but I can tell you one thing which is that uh, cookery books and uh, gardening books uh, do-it-yourself do books are up and uh, diet and fitness books are down, um, and this is in the book-selling uh, trade. And the reason why the diet and fitness books are down is that in the, fa in the fat years, the, the people are getting fat, so they need those books, and in the lean years, they cook at home and garden, so that might be an indicator. Just very briefly, really. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you do remain in employment throughout this, um, and if you do have savings, um, as long as um, you don't have to pay it all back to... Um, uh, our beloved leader, Gordon Brown, um, then actually the, the recession offers some f fantastic opportunities for, for people. I mean, I mean it's, uh, if you can get beyond the constant fear of possibly may being made redundant, actually, for the 90% of people who remain in employment over this period, actually, it presents lots of opportunities. Uh, Claire Fox, Institute of Ideas. Um, I, one of the concerns that I've had in terms of how, as Anthony's distinction has it, the news journalists and commentators the commentary in preference to financial journalists. Um, one of the consequences of them leading a lot of the debate has been, and I want to know what everyone thinks about this really, I think a very crass scapegoating of bankers. And I think the kind of notion of the greedy banker and a kind of, you know, they are responsible for all evil has actually been rather unhelpful. I work with a lot of young people and it's kind of developed into this real kind of crass anti-corporate and everything's down to greed, everything's down to human psychology, and if it wasn't for them. I don't think that's very helpful at understanding something that's far more complicated, misses the point about a sluggish, uh, unproductive economy underneath and all sorts of things. But how do, you, how do you see kind of a way of getting around that? Because I was struck by Simon's point about debate, which is that sometimes what happens is that people think they can't join in the debate because it's too technical and they don't understand it, it's in the financial pages, or the way they're expected to join in it is in a kind of populist witch hunt neither of which is very helpful. I don't know that the media have helped this, by the way, but you, Simon, made the point that some very big issues here, ideological discussions, and the one thing we know that everyone's frightened of doing at the moment is discussing ideology, or treating the public with any intelligence. 
You don't have to mystify them with technical stuff, but there are big questions that everybody needs to start asking. I don't think the media should be frightened that the public won't get it, because you're doing a disservice if you don't ask those questions for us and with us. So, Woody, I think first, have uh, bankers been scapegoated? And then we can talk to Neil and <laughs> Simon. Well, I think there, I think there certainly is, uh, there's been a lot of uh, public anger over what's happened, and I think, you know, probably a lot of that is understandable. I mean, with respect to painting all bankers with the same brush, uh, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of hardworking people, some of whom have paid with their jobs, uh, the vast majority of whom, I can assure you, uh, go into work in the morning and do what probably most of us in this room do. You try to make your contribution, you do the best you can, you pay the bills, uh, you provide for your your family, your life. So I think the um, I think they're probably, uh, while understandable, I think we've probably, in certain respects, um, uh, you, you know, it ha it has gotten um, the, the the hue and cry has probably been unfairly um, directed at at a, at a a group of people when you know clearly there are certain individuals who should be held to account, but uh, not all of us are. Uh, are in that situation. Simon, Neil, do you agree? Uh, well, I don't think... I mean, I, I, I do agree with Clegg, obviously. I mean, I, but I, I think... I mean, clearly bankers haven't helped themselves. I, I mean, I, and I talk about the people who run banks. I mean, I think... I remember back at the beginning of 2008 writing several screeds about how, how outrageous it was that banks were paying out vast dividends and by paying out vast bonuses even as, the, uh, even as their banks were... But, you know, asking for government funds, and then you know, and then it's just sort of beyond belief that a year later we were writing the same articles as they did it all over again, uh, twelve months later, having by this stage been already bailed out by government. So I think bankers haven't helped themselves. Clearly, it's completely absurd to tar all bankers with the brush. And I think you know that the escape has been not helpful. But can I just make one point, which is that um, I mean, I, I, as I said, I do think there is an important debate going. On. I'm more worried actually about the media coming out of this recession than actually going in. I think the media did, I think, as I say, a pretty good job uh, before and during the recession. I'm more worried that the media's great, uh, you know, great virtue is skepticism and challenging the conventional wisdom. And what worries me slightly is that there's a new conventional wisdom developing about the way the world should be post-recession or the way that, you know, the way that... Um, uh, the sort of post-session world, and that journalists, having been on the whole quite bullshy about the, you know the capitalism in the run-up, will now be uh, sort of rather easily accept what I think is a potentially quite frightening and certainly not very uh, um, positive-looking future. And I think actually that I'd be more worried about journalists not challenging the current conventional wisdom. Yeah, do you agree? Um, yeah, I agree with much what Claire says. And the debate is very important and in terms that people can understand. But I, the thing that worries me most is that the numbers now are basically beyond most people's comprehension. They can't really grasp the difference between a billion and a trillion. They are huge numbers. And I don't think that ordinary, the man in the street, has any comprehension of what's coming down the track. about. And, he can look at the chart, if he's very sophisticated, of the public sector borrowing. And since it is so unprecedented, certainly in peacetime, the sort of uh, sacrifices and efforts required to get back to balance uh, are too horrible to think about. 
And I think that is the biggest challenge that we face. And if we can get that across to people, if the, if the commentariat can get that across to people, then we will be doing everyone a service for the medium term. Thanks. Peter? Peter Yorgs. Fred Goodwin's press book. How was that procured? Over what period of time? What was said? What sorts of values and assumptions were being endorsed there? The other thing related to that is the very, very curious divorce in almost all print media between the back of the book, the city pages, and the rest of it, almost irrespective of the ostensible politics. You know, you might as you know, people who wrote city pages might as well have been writing the tulip pages. I think that mic is still playing up. I mean, Anthony, you made the point um, about the difference between news and comment. Um, and Andrew, if you'd like a point, and I'm sure Neil would have something to say about that as well. Well, I think the, the implication of the question is, is, in fact, a very interesting one because uh, uh, the, the, the heroes, uh, the, the supermen of the financial industry were uh, praised, admired, um, talk about the bonuses that were paid, that they were reported in tones of, of awe. And, you know, they're meant to reflect some, some success. The fact that, this, that the city uh, and, and banking in general was um, su such a, a you know, golden egg-laying goose was, was something to be admired and, and applauded. And to some extent, of course, that's dead right. I mean, if you look at the proportion of GDP um, uh, provided by the city uh, and the, the increase in the, in the figure over the last couple of decades, it's been pretty striking. But I've noticed something uh, apropos of this, which is because I sometimes do business ethics, uh, you know, things for companies and for um, for business schools, and I've noticed a growth of interest in business ethics over the last decade or 15 years, um, at exactly the same time as uh, actual practices in at least some sectors of the of, of the industry have been going in the opposite direction, and I've often wondered whether um, this was uh, some kind of fig leaf activity, but. Uh, but, but, but that would be a misleading picture because, uh, for example, in the extraction industries, you think of big oil companies and mining companies who've been trying very, very hard to clean up their act and, and, and present themselves as much more responsible and to do very responsible things, especially in developing countries when they go in there. And they concentrate a lot on questions of good practice, good behavior, good citizenship, good ethics. Um, and, and that has been a very positive thing. So it, it seemed to me that on the whole, as consciousness of uh, probity, uh, social responsibility, corporate responsibility, big buzzword, or, as all that has risen, um, it, it has been a kind of shadow of some at least of what's been happening in short-termism and people uh, realizing that they were dealing with dodgy products and, and yet making a, a, a profit out of it. That I'll be gone, you'll be gone culture, you know, let, let's package this up, sell it on fast, make a quick buck, and it doesn't matter what's going to happen in the future, so has certainly been there. But we now see um, the, the, the results of what's happened uh, with, the, with the global recession on the one hand and on the other hand this much greater consciousness of the fact that the values that have been operative there have been under discussion in this last uh, couple of decades as people have been conscious of the fact that the impact that um, the uh, financial uh, world has on the rest of the world is so great that it goes well into debates about what you admire, what people you admire, what you think their values ought to be and what values in general ought to be.
Just go back on, on onto that point in terms of someone to look into what financial journalists were saying about not just the Sir Freds of the world, but also the business practices. Um, I've actually got, um, I think it's a very important question. I've got a PhD student starting shortly who'd be looking at just that, not just at what the journalists were saying, but at uh, what the financial analysts were saying in the investment banks. And because I suspect that a vast majority of their reports were incredibly biased um, because if you write a nasty story about Sir Fred and uh, RBS, then your particular investment bank is unlikely to get um, a slice of their next M&A deal. What we really, really need, and we, we kind of went halfway down this um, track in 2001-2002, we, we need proper independent research of these companies, and we need um, you know, journalists to have access to that research, and, which isn't tainted by, uh, by the investment bank uh, corporate desires. In defence of Fred Goodwin, he pulled off a transformational deal when RBS bought NatWest. NatWest was a really pretty bad bank and it did transform the business. So his reputation was not built on nothing. It was built on an extremely brave and very well executed deal. We overdid it later, I, under I agree, but it wasn't built on sand. Now, I'm already being given the signs to wrap up. So these two gentlemen um, wanted to ask questions, and Tracy, me here as well. And I think we're going to have to have very sort of targeted and uh, shorter answers from this uh, really interesting debate. Uh, Nico McDonald, I write about innovation and media. Um, it's an observation on Anthony's original comment about the one-sided coverage in the media. Um, I've worked in the media in the technology side for 20 years, and I observe the lack of reflection on the transformations actually happened in the media sector around electronic and then online publishing around questions like productivity, innovation, uh, new models of working and uh, industry transformation. And I wonder the extent that the media sector doesn't reflect on its own transformation, how much it can understand what's happening in the economy more generally beyond, say, the financial press. Uh, and I also wonder to what extent the media can uh, reflect on what's happening when there are no credible political alternatives to what's going on? Do we actually need to have a real opposition with a real uh, alternative to what's going on in order to be able to talk about this in a more profound way? And finally, to Simon and Neil, I thought we were rather defensive about the role of financial journalism, and I think Neil's comment about people not understanding numbers is slightly missing the point. There are qualitative, not quantitative issues we need to address. And I think some commentators who have addressed these questions, and William Keegan's been mentioned, but another is Martin Wolf in the Financial Times in his book, um, uh, uh, it's just published on fixing global finance, looks at the transfer of power, both economic and political, to the East, which is a fascinating question I think ordinary people can engage in. And, second, and Samuel Britton made an observation early on uh, in this uh, crisis in the FT where he talked about it being a logical absurdity there should exist unsatisfied wants side by side with idle workers willing to supply them. Now that's a very profound, simple question that everybody can understand and everyone can see the irony behind that. Um, I haven't seen that question well answered in most of the uh, media, financial or otherwise. Stop you there for the sort of other people that really want to ask a, a question. In fact, you've got there are two questions there, one for Anthony, one to um, Simon and Neil. It's John Purcell here. Um, one of the aspects of this report that I most enjoyed was looking back on the predictions people made, particularly in the first half of 2007 and seeing who was right and who was wrong. Bearing that in mind, and I know you're going to enjoy this panel, could you tell us how long this is going to last, how bad it's going to be, how we're going to get out of it? 
Anthony, I think I might pick on you there. Say that your your first question is a good question, and your answer to your your question is I don't know, but but just just to expand a bit, to very very briefly on your question about uh, the self awareness of of the press. Um, well, I mean, what's happening here at this very moment in this room is a very good example of the press being self aware about it. I think it's a it's a good moment. Um, uh, another eighteen months, twelve percent unemployment, um, and an awful lot of money splashed out. Right, and actually, right, going right, back right, to that. Sorry, I mean, please do. I mean, actually, there is a very simple way to make £1 trillion uh, uh, meaningful to people, and that's just to divide it per head of population. Just say everyone now is on the hook for, you know, 20 grand or whatever it is, if I've done my maths right. I understand what £20,000 feels like, kind of, um, but not £1 trillion, as you say. I don't know the answer. John Kenneth Galbraith said there are two kinds of economists, those who don't know the future and those who don't know they don't know the future. But, um, I, you know, I think it's clear that uh, in 2009 it's going to be a tough year. Um, I, you know, I think the IMF just said that the U.S. economy will be down about 2.8%. Unemployment, I think, is still on the rise. I think there's still, uh, you know, there's bad news coming out of the, out of the earnings uh, that, are, that are coming out right now. Um, you know, I think in, in one way of looking at this is the U.S. housing market in many respects kind of brought us into this. I think it, at some point that's what will bring us out. Uh, I think we're probably looking, you know, another uh, year or so before before that happens. We still haven't hit the uh, hit the trough in terms of uh, house price declines either here in in the U.S. or here in uh, in the U.K. or the U.S. Thanks, Simon. Um, the answer to the question about futures, I obviously just don't know either, and um, I don't think, but I don't think that that's really. The, I don't really feel that's the important thing for us to be trying to do, trying to say how long it's going to last. And how, I mean, I think that all we can do is just try to analyse what the risks are, what the probabilities are, what the factors that might influence things are, and try and, and connect some of the dots. And, I, and um, you know, the, there are so many different variables in this crisis that it's global. Things that take place in China can have an impact on what happens in Brazil, which will then have an impact on the city of London. So I just think it's so vast and so complex um, but uh, I personally, on the other hand, think that the deleveraging the financial system has a very, very long way to go, and there are huge questions about the risks of governments piling on so much debt. So I would be not buying anything right now. Thanks. You know, I don't want to be as cheerful as these people because I think it's actually a lot worse. I don't think we have a model to predict it. I think we're off the end of the scale. Uh, I think that the real danger is actually... Uh, a collapse of a major currency and the one that is most likely to collapse has got to be sterling and if you look at the numbers there is no possibility of the budget forecast being met even if they were I don't believe people will stand for a decade of austerity something will break and I think first it will be the gilts market and then it will be the currency Tracy Corrigan from the Telegraph um, Professor Grayling, you were saying that you don't think that uh, telling people what's right and wrong helps to fix ethics. Um, and uh, I think one worrying uh, element is that there's every sign at the moment that banking profits are coming back, that banks such as Barclays and Goldman are doing everything they can to either get or stay out of government ownership precisely in order so that they can carry on paying very big bonuses. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that, uh, that there's any uh, plan really to... Um, improve the ethical environment in banks? How, how, how should that be done? Um, sorry, well, I, I think that that's... Uh, um, 
not quite right because because I, I do think that there's been a sort of shock to the system uh, on that front too. Um, and I've noticed it just recently. We've always thought that those of us who've been interested in talking about um, trying to uh, infuse a sense of responsible behaviour uh, in financial institutions on, on a personal level, among the people who are actually involved, and especially among people who are leading teams in those um, environments, um, that if you try and do it top-down, you know, if you, you get an email from your boss saying this is the following five points or mission statement and this is how we're going to behave ethically, that that doesn't work. But uh, what, what's happened now with people losing jobs and, and people being very insecure about the future is that they've begun to think about how you do it, as it were, from the bottom up, how you think much more about uh, what kind of institution you want to be an employee of and uh, how you would like to see it behaving. You know, having the very uncomfortable spectacle of seeing your chairman or your CEO explaining why things have gone so badly wrong on the telly is not a good feeling for somebody who's in a company. And so I get the sense at any rate, but it's just anecdotal, that there's, there's a lot more reflection on this. And it may very well be that there's a kind of change of sentiment um, about ethics, about ethical behavior, and about the sort of micro decisions that people make in companies, more prepared to do the ethical thing rather than the unethical thing because of it. But as I say, that's just anecdotal. Actually, while we're waiting, Mitty is going to ask, I'm going to be uh, cheeky and ask one chair question, which is, what can be done about changing what we've talked about, a sort of, the, you know, the social and ethical fabric being changed by, for 20 years, everybody saying, well, this is the right way to do things, and we all just gaily carry on. Do you, is that just human nature, or is there something that could change? Well, I think it's, it really is a question of, of uh, sentiment, of insight, of, of how people feel about things. You know, um, if you've been working in a bank and things have been going very well uh, in the boom economy, you feel a little bit sealed off from, from the rest of the community, except in the sense that you're conscious that you're doing much better than other people in the economy are because you're getting bigger bonuses and so forth. Now, however, people are seeing the impact in the real world, uh, that the effect on real lives out there in the rest of the economy uh, and uh, it feeds back in you know there is a kind of feedback loop there so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see I mean again the danger of prognostication but I wouldn't be surprised to see a change of sentiment in that respect how people behave what kinds of, of choices they feel able to make that, that it's legitimate or justified to make in the practice of their business lives it wouldn't surprise me to see some diffusion of, uh, of, uh, of ideas about uh, ethics. You know, Claire will know that ideas are extremely potent things and when out of a great debate, a tumultuous debate like this one, there, there arises things to be discussed. We go back to the point made earlier about moral hazard, about mm. the responsibility of people taking um, a good look at the consequences of their behaviour and having to pay for it and not being mm. uh, you know, given the big safety net of state backing and so on. Th that, that kind of thing will come back into focus as we, as we go forward thinking about a regulatory framework and what we say to people who come to business schools like this one about what, how they will practice when they go out there in, into the big world. I mean, I'm fairly optimistic about it because I, I think it will have a change, make a change to the way people feel about what they do in this line of work. Me here. Me here, Bose. Uh, this is for Neil Collins. Um, not so much a question, Neil, a more reflection. I'm, I'm intrigued you are so pessimistic about uh, business journalism because it seems to me this has been a golden age of reporting for financial journalism. First of all, it's broken down the great 
class divide we've had in this country between the city press and the business press. I mean, if you talk in America about city journalists, they mean the people who report the city. You know, they don't understand the word city being business. And you will recall, Neil, um, we've discussed this before, uh, 20 years ago, when they used to talk about the Friday night drop, when the PR man came on Friday night and told the city journalists, you know, ramp up the share. And no, you never did that, of course, but, you know, many, many city journalists, you know, gleefully wrote about um, city prices, in knowing that they could, you know, pocket their money and their readers could pocket money. But, and this, this crisis, and we've also been brought up on the great Dominic Harrod and Peter Jay. Peter Jay famously only used to broadcast for two people, one of whom would understand him and the other one wouldn't. And, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, and, and this story has been broken, if you like, by my colleague, the great Robert Peston. Uh, he's got his bad side as an Arsenal supporter. But um, apart from that, um, Arsenal season taken over worse than that. But apart from that, um, uh, I mean, you know, the, 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 the business and financial journalists, um, while there might be deficiencies in the way they reported it, have that division has gone. And I think they have tried their best and they have taken the front page and they have come, come out, wouldn't you say, out of the Kinga Garden and, you know, no longer be in the back pages, which they've often been in, 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 in British journalism. Glimmer of hope, Neil. Do you agree? Uh, well, it has been. I mean, we, we've had a golden age of financial journalism, no doubt about it. But um, uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not convinced. You know, having had, uh, I think the, the, the first volume of work might be called "How Journalists Think." The second volume might be called "How Journalists Eat." <laughs> so. I think on that note, unless Julia tells me I've gone too <laughs> No, I haven't. Um, I think, uh, obviously, the future may be bleak, um, both for the financial system and, indeed, us journalists. Um, but there have been rays of optimism uh, raised today, not least the very, very interesting points made um, by our panel and, indeed, by uh, all of you. Um, so the last thing to do is just to raise a hand for the panellists and, indeed, for the audience. Thank you.